Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philemon 1, starting at verse 9. Yet, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become both useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. All right. Well, good morning once again, everyone. Thank you for coming to Table Church today. I want to give you a few quick updates on some, th- some things that we got going on here. Uh, as you heard Pastor Megan say, uh, next week we've got both sections of kids' ministry happening every week moving forward. So we're pretty pumped about that. And I want to say thanks to all the people who have stepped up to help us make that a reality. Um, also, she mentioned table groups. I want to alert you to one particular group that's starting. And um, Trevor Zelinsky and I are going to be going through a book called The Intentional Father by T- uh, John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York. And this book, the subtitle is Raising Sons of Courage and Character. Uh, experts repeatedly talk about the boy crisis that there is in our culture. It appears that our culture, we have no idea how to raise boys. Um, and so the data is also fairly clear that the solution is fathers and father figures. And so if you are a dad or a grandpa or an uncle or a stepdad or a mentor or whatever the case, if you have an interest in helping a young man grow, uh, we want to invite you to sign up for this. It's going to start February 19th. It's going to be at 8 a.m. at the ministry center. We're just going to walk through that book together. And I hope that, uh, yeah, dads and men um, with who have father figure roles in the life of a young boy, we hope that you'll come. If you have any questions, be sure to let me know. And of course, dads, if you don't have any boys and uh, you just have girls, uh, that's okay. I hear he's writing another one about raising girls. So maybe they'll be around too in the future. We'll see. Sign up. I look, to, look forward to seeing you there. In 1791, less than one week before he died, John Wesley, the great theologian and pastor, wrote what would be his final letter. It was addressed to William Wilberforce, who at the time was engaged in his long and arduous battle against slavery in England. Wesley wrote to encourage Wilberforce to continue his fight and to not give up hope. In the letter, Wesley refers to slavery as, quote, that execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. He goes on to say this to Wilberforce in his letter. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. We're launching a new series today. It's called Hearts on Fire, What It Means to be Wesleyan. Yeah, we're going to nerd out a little bit today, and um, I hope that that's okay. My goal in the next four weeks is not only to inform you what it means to be Wesleyan, but I hope to excite you about it a little bit as well. Because whether you know it or not, you're sitting in a Wesleyan church 
congregation today. This is not a church building, but you're sitting, you're attending a Wesleyan church service today. We belong to that denomination, and my goal is to help you understand what that means a little bit better. Now, we trace our roots ultimately back to Jesus Christ, obviously, but our particular theological tradition began with John Wesley in, the, in England in the 1700s, and now there are several different uh, denominations that would call themselves Wesleyan theologically. We just happen to have the name Wesleyan for our denomination. So Nazarenes and Methodists and Salvation Army, those are some denominations that, broadly speaking, are part of the Wesleyan theological tradition. Our denomination is called the Wesleyan Church. Wesleyans belong to that theological tradition, but I want you to know there are some things that I'm not trying to do in this series. So here's, here's a couple things I'm, I'm not trying to do. Number one, I'm not trying to one-up other denominations. I'm obviously Wesleyan for a reason, but you know I, I like the theology and the history and stuff like that, but honestly, I was, I was born into this. It's my family, just as much as anything. And uh, so I'm not trying to say that ours is better than anyone else's. In fact, as a Wesleyan, uh, that would be a rather un-Wesleyan thing for me to say because one of our values is to be generous towards other Christian denominations. I happen to appreciate the emphases that other believers bring to the gospel. In fact, John Wesley even said, if your heart is as mine, give me your hand. In other words, if we can align in a purpose, then let's work together. So I'm not trying to one-up denominations here. Not trying to say we're the best. And number two, I'm not trying to force anyone into anything. Some of you might not agree with some finer point of Wesleyan doctrine. That's fine. Honestly, I don't really care. Like, that's okay. It's not a big deal. I would say the same about myself, even. You can be a happy, thriving part of Table Church and not toe the Wesleyan party line in everything. That's just fine. My goal is to simply help you know what it means to be Wesleyan, and I hope that you'll find that it's something compelling enough that you'll, in the end, want to move further into it. You've already perhaps picked up on today's topic. It's liberation and justice. This goes back to the very heart of how we got our start as a movement. And in the coming weeks, you'll hear about the Wesleyan passion for discipleship and evangelism, mutual leadership between men and women, and holiness. The movement that John Wesley started came to be known as the Methodists, and by the time that he wrote that letter to Wilberforce, the Methodist movement had moved across the Atlantic Ocean and was taking root in America. From the beginning, Methodism was clearly against slavery. In fact, one strong stand against slavery emerged at a convention at the, of the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1784 in America, where the discipline included a rule against, quote, buying or selling the bodies of souls and men, bodies and souls of men, women, or children. However, such a rule, as you might imagine, soon caused controversy, and so they, within six months, ended up taking that language out of the document, out of the discipline, all while still trying to maintain a general stance against slavery. So you start to see now, we're, we're starting to speak out of two sides of our mouth a bit. The denomination continued to go soft on slavery. In fact, it removed all anti-slavery language from the discipline only in the state of Virginia, but left it in, in the northern states. And so this continued to go on, and there arose a group of abolitionists who fought against slavery from within the denomination, and chief among those was a man named Orange Scott. Orange Scott was the primary spokesman of a group of Methodist leaders who passionately labored for the immediate end of slavery. They became rather despised in their time. They were called agitators and troublemakers. They were social justice activists of their day. 
They upset the status quo. They pushed against the way things were. They worked to awaken the conscience of their denomination. I've often observed this about early Wesleyans. Early Wesleyans were annoying. If one of them came into our worship service today, we might get a little bothered. They had an uncompromising message. Not only that slavery must end, but that it must end now. Their work was constantly slowed by the moderates. The moderates were those who thought slavery should end, but, you know, just not yet. Let due process take its course, the moderates would say. Let the courts do their work, they would say. Everything will get resolved in the end, but Orange Scott wasn't buying it. 150 years later, Martin Luther King Jr. would observe that the white moderates were still saying the same things. That voting rights for black people should come, but we just need to be patient. Let the courts do their work, they would say. But Martin Luther King didn't buy it. He knew that when the time for justice is any time other than now, then what we're really saying is that the time is never. Eventually, Orange Scott and his peers realized that the Methodist church wasn't going to budge. No matter how annoying they were, they weren't going to change. They decided that to stay in a church that refused to live up to its supposed ideals would be sinful. And so they cut ranks with the Methodists and they began what was called the Wesleyan Methodist Connection. Shortly after leaving the denomination, they were joined by one who had become another significant early Wesleyan. His name was Luther Lee. Luther Lee was a magnificent theologian. He became the editor of a newspaper called The True Wesleyan, which was a newspaper devoted to abolitionism. Most of the articles that they wrote were devoted to that cause. In fact, here's an excerpt from that paper, an article written by Orange Scott. He says this, Thou art my brother, and so long as those chains bind my body and thy mind is cramped by such a vile system, I will not cease to plead thy cause and expose the deep hypocrisy of this nation in declaring to the world that, quote, all men are created equal while she stands upon the necks of more than two million men, women, and children. As you can see, he had quite a pen. When Orange Scott refers to a slave as his brother, he's expressing something significant. This is, this is not something that humans just naturally assume to be true. The idea that he would be a brother to someone from another continent, somebody in another social class than him, is not, throughout history, a self-evident idea. He received that idea from somewhere. It comes from our passage that we read today. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to Philemon, who was a wealthy man who Paul led to Christ. One of Philemon's slaves named Onesimus ran away and apparently somehow crosses paths with Paul, the former mentor of his former master. Now, we don't know if this was, if maybe Onesimus sought Paul out, Paul was in prison at the time, or if somehow, some massive coincidence, they came together. But whatever the case, Paul leads Onesimus to Christ, and then Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, his master, with a letter in hand. And that letter becomes now the shortest book of the New Testament called Philemon. And the implications of that short letter are absolutely revolutionary. The ancient world, you see, was built on the backs of slaves. Slavery in the Roman era appears not to have been quite as awful as American slavery. We are particularly good at creating a torturous kind of slavery. But there's still no question that people endured tremendous suffering as slaves. And yet here we have Paul sending a slave back to the master he had left and telling his master Philemon these remarkable words. 
Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. With those two sentences, Paul completely upends the dominant social understanding of the time. It was believed then that some people are simply divinely endowed with more worth by the gods, and some people aren't. But Paul says that's nonsense. He demonstrates that this slave is both a fellow man and a brother. There is another ancient letter that kind of resembles Paul's letter to Philemon, and it was written by a guy named Pliny the Younger. Pliny was not a Christian. Pliny was a, a statesman, a politician in Rome. And he was writing to his friend named Sabinianus. Just like Paul, Pliny had come into contact with one of Sabinianus's former slaves. And just like Paul, Pliny writes this letter, gives it to the slave, and sends him back to Sabinianus. And just like Paul, the letter is asking the, former, the master to take the slave back. And just like Paul, Pliny, in the letter, kind of passively pulls rank on his friend in order to get him to do what he does. He says that he could command Sabinianus. Paul says he could command Philemon to do what they want, but instead they're going to let them make the right choice. For example, here's what Paul writes. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Similarly, Pliny says to Sabinianus, I'm afraid it will look as though I'm putting pressure on you, not simply making a request. So both Pliny and Paul are kind of gently pulling rank. Paul is the apostle, Pliny is the statesman, trying to get them to do the right thing. Also, both Paul and Pliny encourage Philemon and Sabinianus to take these slaves back. So you can see now, I just, I'm trying to establish for you the parallels between these two ancient letters from about the same time, trying to accomplish about the same purpose. Because it's fascinating what illuminates about the gospel when we see these two historical parallels side by side. Because even though there were some significant similarities in these two letters, there were some even more significant differences. One of those differences is how they view the former slaves. The way Paul and Pliny view the former slaves could scarcely be more different. Pliny does not use the language of brother. Pliny does not encourage Sabinianus to love this man. In fact, he says, look, you can always be angry again if he deserves it. Whereas Paul says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. Welcome him as you would welcome me. See, Pliny sees this slave as something expendable. If he messes up again, then go ahead and torture him, he says. Be angry. But Paul says, Onesimus is my very heart. Act as though he were me. Treat him like he were me. Paul sees a dignity and a value in Onesimus that Pliny is completely lost on him. And Pliny is representative of how the whole culture would have thought. It'd be madness for anybody to write that a slave would be his brother or that you should treat a slave as you would treat me. This completely undoes a whole system of honor in the culture, and yet that's exactly what Paul is doing in this letter. Here's the second big difference. The second difference is their reasons for encouraging acceptance. Pliny encourages Sabinianus to accept the man again, not because of the dignity of the former slave, but rather because it would make Sabinianus look better. 
He says, yes, I know you are angry, and I know, too, that you have a right to be angry, but mercy earns most praise when anger is fully justified. In other words, look, Sabinianus, you have every right to be angry, but that's all the more reason why you should be merciful, because you'll look even better then. People will walk around and be like, they'll talk about the, the virtue and the mercy and the grace of Sabinianus. It'll be a credit to your account, Sabinianus. You should take him back. Paul, however, has an entirely different reason for encouraging mercy from Philemon. It's because Onesimus is simply worthy of it. As a child of God, it's not for any benefit that Philemon might receive. Rather, it's for the fact that just as Christ died for Philemon, Christ also died for Onesimus. They're now equal. Listen, the entire social order has been disrupted by the cross. And that brings up an important caveat as I preach this sermon today about our roots in anti-slavery efforts. It'd be easy for someone like me to get a little self-congratulatory. But there's no room for that because, number one, early Wesleyans were simply doing what was obviously right. You shouldn't really get congratulated for doing things that are obviously right. And number two, it should have never had to happen in the first place. And number three, all credit goes, for God, goes to God for revealing to us the fact that everybody truly is endowed with dignity by him. Everyone is, is born with the image of God in them. And so we take no credit for any of this. In fact, it's a tremendous travesty that I even have to preach that this is what happened. But their understanding of humanity, Paul and Pliny, their understanding of humanity could scarcely be more different. Pliny sees the man as expendable. Paul sees Onesimus as a dear brother. Why? Because of the power of the gospel. An institution like slavery cannot stand beneath the weight of the reality that the God of the universe became a poor man and died for the sins of the world. That changes everything. And that is the way the early Wesleyans understood the world. They were simply living out the reality the fact that Christ had died for us. We left off our walk through early Wesleyan history with Orange Scott and Luther Lee. I'm going to fast forward a few decades now. In the 1840s, there arose a desire within the new movement to plant an abolitionist church right in the heart of the slaveholding South. And so Freedom's Hill Church was planted in North Carolina by a 23-year-old pastor named Adam Crooks. He's from Ohio, and he's the one who took the call to go below the Mason-Dixon line, and plant an abolitionist church. Adam Crooks was heavily persecuted for his outspoken stance against slavery. He was dragged from his pulpit. He was thrown into jail for his anti-slavery efforts. He was prisoned, poisoned, sorry, and prison. He was poisoned, but he survived, and ambushes were laid for his life. I think we have a picture of Freedom Sill. Let's put that back up if we already did. If we can, there it is. So, uh, this church has been preserved. It now sits on the campus of Southern Wesleyan University in South Carolina. Um, but if you see the building, you'll know that you'll notice that there are, are to this day bullet holes in the side of the building that people left there as they were worshiping inside. They would ride by and they would shoot guns at the building simply because they were against slavery. When he was arrested, Adam Crooks asked his jailer, "Hey, if Jesus were here, would you arrest him too?" And the jailer said, if he was an abolitionist, we probably would. One of the worshipers at Freedom Hill Church named Makaija McPherson was lynched by a mob for his anti-slavery views. 
Thinking that he was dead, they cut him down, reportedly saying that they needed the rope to hang another Wesleyan. But McPherson actually survived the attempt on his life. His wife nursed him back to health, and he anchored Freedom Hill Church for another 30 years. By the way, the dogwood tree that he was hanged from has since been cut down, but some of the wood from that very tree is now a gavel that is used in the Wesleyan General Conference proceedings. Freedom Hill Church was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Using a hollowed-out tree near the church was as a hiding place for slaves escaping north, and there were many other Wesleyan churches that served as stops on the railroad, too, throughout Ohio and Indiana and Michigan. See, the early Wesleyans did these things. They did them at great personal risk because they knew no other way. For them, Christianity was not simply a cultural tradition. It was a call to come and die. It was a call to take up your cross for the sake of Jesus. And Jesus utterly dismantled all forms of racism and bigotry on the cross, which means there's no way for us to follow his lead unless we do the same. The the early Wesleyans burning passion to follow this call, to take up your cross, to come and die, was so real that the earliest Wesleyan missionaries would pack their belongings in their coffins before they crossed the ocean because they knew that once they go, they weren't coming back. Now, I wish I could continue this story through to the present day and give you kind of endless examples of courageous Wesleyans continuing the work of liberation and justice. But sadly, by the time the civil rights movement came around in the 50s and 60s, the Wesleyan call for justice, which was once a mighty roar, had dulled to a faint whisper. In fact, you might even say that we'd become the moderates that Orange Scott encountered and Martin Luther King wrote about. In 2020, we all walked through the greatest civil rights moment since the 60s, triggered by the deaths of people like Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And once again, the Wesleyan voice hasn't always been terribly easy to discern in this. I've looked around sometimes with a little bit of disappointment, wishing that there was a clearer call for justice, a clearer sense of who we are right now in this time, as questions about race and oppression swirl about us in culture. But just because it's been a little hard to discern doesn't mean it hasn't been there. In fact, you all got to meet our general superintendent a few weeks ago. He preached, and you got to hear a little bit of his heart, which is he's had for a long time, to see the church look more like the kingdom of heaven. And I can tell you this. The Wesleyan Church right now is pushing into numerous places where they are starting to plant multi-ethnic churches, uh, desiring to break down racial barriers, and more and more churches are becoming churches that look like Revelation 7, where every tribe and nation and tongue will worship around the throne of God. But I do wonder what Orange Scott and Luther Lee and Adam Crooks and Micaiah McPherson would say today. What would they say about the massive disparities between white people and people of color that persist even in our modern age? In almost every aspect of life, from wealth and birth mortality rates to education? Would they speak up about the lingering effects of the sins that they risk their lives to end? Would they look at the lingering effects of things like redlining in Des Moines? Would they try to shake us out of our slumber? Would they get called liberal and woke by their peers as they simply tried to apply the gospel to all of life? Would we find them annoying? Would we want them to calm down a bit? Would I find myself uncomfortable in their presence? Have we lost our radical message and become moderate? 
This series is about what it means to be Wesley, and I'm asking myself the same question as I preach it. I've asked myself lately, what does it mean to be Wesleyan right now? I don't have a lot, but I have just a small church in Iowa, and I have a pulpit from where I can preach the fact that the cross of Christ has exploded our social hierarchies, as we see in Philemon. I can declare the fact that God's judgment does fall on those who neglect the poor and disinherited, as we see in Matthew 25. And we can decide as a church to be Wesleyan, to be radical for the gospel, to have the courage to stand against sin and to shine a light in the darkness. We are a Wesleyan church, and so what that means for us is that when it comes to debates around things like race that are swirling in our culture right now, our first question is not about the philosophical viability or the political expediency of this or that idea. Our first question is always, whose neck has a boot on it and how do we get it off? To put it bluntly, Wesleyans believe that philosophical debates are secondary to getting boots off necks. Look, our denomination, our tradition has not produced any top-tier upper-deck theologians, no huge compendiums of systematic theology. We're not known for our ability to parse the nitty-gritty of the swirling currents of philosophical debates in culture. What we're known for is what we've done, what we do. We are a people who act. And right now in our world, these debates are waging often at the expense of those who are hurting. And believe me, I'm a guy who loves philosophy, but we must first ask who needs our help. That's what it means to be Wesleyan. Because we serve a master who came not for the healthy, but for the sick, who came to proclaim good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, as Jesus says in Luke 4. As we go through this series, you're going to have an email in your inbox from Pastor Megan on Monday morning, and it's going to include a link to our website. We've created a page, she's created a page which all, with all sorts of other background information about the Wesleyan history uh, having to do with that particular topic. And so I hope that you'll check it out tomorrow when you get it. There's all sorts of kind of neat uh, historical details, things you can read, stuff you can learn more about where we come from and, and who we are. And so I hope that you will join us in that. Also, it'd be silly to preach a sermon on what it means to be Wesleyan and not offer you an opportunity to become Wesleyan. And so we're going to have a membership class on March 12th at 9 o'clock a.m. If you want to sign up for that, we'll be mentioning it throughout the rest of the series as well. But you can just circle that on your connection card and we will be sure to get in touch with you and get you plugged in. I hope that you're excited to journey through this with me for the uh, next several weeks. Honestly, I had this series on the, on the preaching calendar when I made it last year. Um, and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do it because I'm like, who cares what Wesleyans are? Like, that'll be boring. People will fall asleep. And I shared it with a few people and said, no, I think people might be interested to hear that. And now I've written all the messages and I can tell you it's been some of the most fun I've had writing sermons in a while. So I hope that you'll come. I feel like I say that about every sermon series, but this one is true. I hope that you'll come and join us. Let's pray. Oh God, you are a God of mercy, a God of justice, a God of freedom. That's who we should be as well. And so God, may we not rest as a church to continue to help elevate communities who have been oppressed, who have been marginalized. May we not rest as a church to continue to be a witness and a light and salt, Lord, in this city. May we not rest but to see your kingdom come more fully in Des Moines. 
and to see Des Moines be more and more as it is in heaven. We love you. We pray all these things in your strong name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we sing once more?